This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katie Anderson. Irrawan by Samuel Butler. Chapter 5 The River and the Range. My next business was to descend upon the river. I had lost sight of the pass which I had seen from the saddle but had made such notes of it that I could not fail to find it. I was bruised and stiff, and my boots had begun to give, for I had been going on rough ground for more than three weeks, but as the day wore on, and I found myself descending without serious difficulty, I became easier. In a couple of hours I got among pine forests, where there was little undergrowth, and descended quickly till I reached the edge of another precipice, which gave me a great deal of trouble, though I eventually managed to avoid it. By about three or four o'clock I found myself on the river-bed. From calculations which I made as to the height of the valley on the other side the saddle over which I had come, I concluded that the saddle itself could not be less than nine thousand feet high, and I should think the river-bed onto which I now descended was three thousand feet above the sea-level. The water had a terrific current, with a fall of not less than forty to fifty feet per mile. It was certainly the river next to the northward of that which flowed past my master's run, and would have to go through an impassable gorge, as is commonly the case with the rivers of that country, before it came upon known parts. It was reckoned to be nearly two thousand feet above the sea level where it came out of the gorge onto the plains. As soon as I got to the riverside I liked it even less than I thought I should. It was muddy being near its parent glaciers. The stream was wide, rapid, and rough, and I could hear the smaller stones knocking against each other under the rage of the waters, as upon a seashore. Fording was out of the question. I could not swim and carry my swag, and I dared not leave my swag behind me. My only chance was to make a small raft, and that would be difficult to make, and not at all safe when it was made, not for one man in such a current. As it was too late to do much that afternoon, I spent the rest of it in going up and down the riverside and seeing where I should find the most favorable crossing. Then I camped early and had a quiet, comfortable night with no more music, for which I was thankful, as it had haunted me all day, although I perfectly well knew that it had been nothing but my own fancy, brought on by the reminiscence of what I had heard from Chowbok and by the over-excitement of the preceding evening. Next day I began gathering the dry bloom stalks of a kind of flag or iris-looking plant, which was abundant and whose leaves, when torn into strips, were as strong as the strongest string. I brought them to the waterside and fell to making myself a kind of rough platform, which should suffice for myself and my swag if I could only stick to it. The stalks were ten or twelve feet long and very strong, but light and hollow. I made my raft entirely of them, binding bundles of them at right angles to each other, neatly and strongly, with strips from leaves of the same plant and tying other rods across. It took me all day till nearly four o'clock to finish the raft, but I still had enough daylight for crossing and resolved on doing so at once. I had selected a place where the river was broad and comparatively still, some at seventy or eighty yards above a furious rapid. At this spot I had built my raft. I now launched it, made my swag fast to the middle, and got onto it myself, keeping in my hand one of the longest blossom stalks, so that I might punt myself across as long as the water was shallow enough to let me do so. I got on pretty well for twenty or thirty yards from the shore, but even in this short space I nearly upset my raft by shifting too rapidly from one side to the other. The water then became much deeper, and I leaned over so far in order to get the bloom rod to the bottom that I had to stay still leaning on the rod for a few seconds. 
Then when I lifted up the rod from the ground, the current was too much for me, and I found myself being carried down the rapid. Everything in a second flew past me, and I had no more control over the raft, neither can I remember anything except hurry and noise and waters which in the end upset me. But it all came right, and I found myself near the shore, not more than up to my knees in water, and pulling my raft to land, fortunately upon the left bank of the river, which was the one I wanted. When I had landed I found that I was about a mile, or perhaps a little less, below the point from which I started. My swag was wet upon the outside, and I was myself dripping, but I had gained my point, and knew that my difficulties were for a time over. I then lit my fire and dried myself. Having done so I caught some of the young ducks and seagulls which were abundant on and near the riverbed, so that I had not only a good meal, of which I was in great want, having had an insufficient diet from the time that Chowbok left me, but was also well provided for on the morrow. I thought of Chowbok and felt how useful he had been to me, and in how many ways I was the loser by his absence, having now to do all sorts of things for myself, which he had hitherto done for me, and could do infinitely better than I could. Moreover, I had set my heart upon making him a real convert to the Christian religion, which he had already embraced outwardly, though I cannot think that it had taken deep root in his impenetrably stupid nature. I used to catechize him by our campfire and explain to him the mysteries of the Trinity and of original sin, with which I was myself familiar, having been the grandson of an archdeacon by my mother's side, to say nothing of the fact that my father was a clergyman of the English church. I was therefore sufficiently qualified for the task, and was the more inclined to it, over and above my real desire to save the unhappy creature from an eternity of torture, by recollecting the promise of St. James that if any one converted a sinner, which Chowbok surely was, he should hide a multitude of sins. I reflected, therefore, that the conversion of Chowbok might in some degree compensate for irregularities and shortcomings in my own previous life, the remembrance of which had been more than once unpleasant to me during my recent experiences. Indeed, on one occasion I had even gone so far as to baptize him, as well as I could, having ascertained that he had certainly not been both christened and baptized, and gathering from his telling me that he had received the name William from the missionary, that it was probably the first mentioned rite to which he had been subjected. I thought it great carelessness on the part of the missionary to have omitted the second, and certainly more important, ceremony which I have always understood precedes christening, both in the case of infants and of adult converts and when I thought of the risks we were both incurring, I determined that there should be no further delay. Fortunately, it was not yet twelve o'clock, so I baptized him at once from one of the pannikins, the only vessels I had, reverently, and I trust efficiently. I then set myself to work to instruct him in the deeper mysteries of our belief, and to make him not only in name but in heart a Christian. It is true that I might not have succeeded, for Chalbach was very hard to teach. Indeed, on the evening of the same day that I baptized him, he tried for the twentieth time to steal the brandy, which made me rather unhappy as to whether I could have baptized him rightly. He had a prayer book, more than twenty years old, which had been given him by the missionaries, but the only thing in it which had taken any living hold upon him was the title of Adelaide the Queen Dowager, which he would repeat whenever strongly moved or touched, and which did really seem to have some deep spiritual significance to him though he could never completely separate her individuality from that of Mary Magdalene, whose name had also fascinated him, though in a less degree. He was indeed stony ground, but by digging about him I might have, at any rate, deprived him of all faith in the religion of his tribe, which would have been halfway towards making him a sincere Christian, and now all this was cut off from me, and I could neither be of further spiritual assistance to him, nor he of bodily profit to myself. 
Besides, any company was better than being quite alone. I got very melancholy as these reflections crossed me, but when I had boiled the ducks and eaten them I was much better. I had a little tea left and about a pound of tobacco, which should last me for another fortnight with moderate smoking. I had also eight ship biscuits, and most precious of all, about six ounces of brandy which I presently reduced to four, for the night was cold. I rose with early dawn, and in an hour I was on my way, feeling strange, not to say weak, from the burden of solitude, but full of hope when I considered how many dangers I had overcome, and that this day should see me at the summit of the dividing range. After a slow but steady climb of between three and four hours, during which I met with no serious hindrance, I found myself upon a tableland, and close to a glacier which I recognized as marking the summit of the pass. Above it towered a succession of rugged precipices and snowy mountainsides. The solitude was greater than I could bear. The mountain upon my master's sheep run was a crowded thoroughfare in comparison with this somber, sullen place. The air, moreover, was dark and heavy, which made the loneliness even more oppressive. There was an inky gloom over all that was not covered with snow and ice. Grass, there was none. Each moment I felt increasing upon me that dreadful doubt as to my own identity, as to the continuity of my past and present existence, which is the first sign of that distraction which comes on those who have lost themselves in the bush. I had fought against this feeling hitherto, and had conquered it, but the intense silence and gloom of this rocky wilderness were too much for me, and I felt that my power of collecting myself was beginning to be impaired. I rested for a little while, and then advanced over very rough ground until I reached the lower end of the glacier. Then I saw another glacier descending from the eastern side into a small lake. I passed along the western side of the lake where the ground was easier, and when I had got about halfway I expected that I should see the plains which I had already seen from the opposite mountains. But it was not to be so, for the clouds rolled up to the very summit of the pass, though they did not overlip it, on to the side from which I had come. I therefore soon found myself enshrouded by a cold thin vapor, which prevented my seeing more than a very few yards in front of me. Then I came upon a large patch of old snow in which I could distinctly trace the half-melted tracks of goats, and in one place, as it seemed to me, there had been a dog following them. Had I lighted upon a land of shepherds? The ground, where not covered with snow, was so poor and stony, and there was so little herbage that I could see no sign of path or regular sheep track. But I could not help feeling rather uneasy as I wondered what sort of a reception I might meet with if I were to suddenly come upon inhabitants. I was thinking of this and proceeding cautiously through the mist when I began to fancy that I saw some objects darker than the cloud looming in front of me. A few steps brought me nearer, and a shudder of unutterable horror ran through me when I saw a circle of gigantic forms, many times higher than myself, upstanding grim and gray through the veil of cloud before me. I suppose I must have fainted, for I found myself some time afterwards sitting upon the ground, sick and deadly cold. There were the figures, quite still and silent, seen vaguely through the thick gloom, but in human shape, indisputably. A sudden thought occurred to me, which would have doubtless struck me at once had I not been prepossessed with forebodings at the time that I first saw the figures, and had not the cloud concealed them from me. I mean that they were not living beings, but statues. I determined that I would count fifty slowly, and was sure that the objects were not alive if during that time I could detect no sign of motion. How thankful was I when I came to the end of my fifty and there had been no movement! I counted a second time, but again all was still. I then advanced timidly forward, and in another moment I saw that my surmise was correct. I had come upon a sort of stonehenge of rude and barbaric figures, seated as Chowbok had sat when I questioned him in the wool shed, and with the same superhumanly malevolent expression on their faces. 
They had been all seated, but two had fallen. They were barbarous, neither Egyptian, nor Assyrian, nor Japanese, different from any of these, and yet akin to all. They were six or seven times larger than life, of great antiquity, worn and lichen-grown. They were ten in number. There was snow upon their heads, and wherever snow could lodge. Each statue had been built of four or five enormous blocks, but how these had been raised and put together is known to those alone who raised them. Each was terrible after a different kind. One was raging furiously, as in pain and great despair. Another was lean and cadaverous with famine. Another cruel and idiotic, but with the silliest simper that can be conceived. This one had fallen, and looked exquisitely ludicrous in his fall. The mouths of all were more or less open, and as I looked at them from behind, I saw that their heads had been hollowed. I was sick and shivering with cold. Solitude had unmanned me already, and I was utterly unfit to have come upon such an assembly of fiends in such a dreadful wilderness and without preparation. I would have given everything I had in the world to have been back at my master's station, but that was not to be thought of. My head was failing, and I felt sure that I could never get back alive. Then came a gust of howling wind accompanied with a moan from one of the statues above me. I clasped my hands in fear. I felt like a rat caught in a trap, as though I would have turned and bitten at whatever thing was nearest me. The wildness of the wind increased, the moans grew shriller, coming from several statues, and swelling into a chorus. I almost immediately knew what it was, but the sound was so unearthly that this was but little consolation. The inhuman beings into whose hearts the evil one had put it to conceive these statues had made their heads into a sort of organ-pipe, so that their mouths should catch the wind and sound with its blowing. It was horrible. However brave a man might be, he could never stand such a concert from such lips, and in such a place. I heaped every invective upon them that my tongue could utter as I rushed away from them into the mist, and even after I had lost sight of them, and turning my head round could see nothing but the storm-wraiths driving behind me, I heard their ghostly chanting, and felt as though one of them would rush after me, and grip me in his hand and throttle me. I may say here, since my return to England, I heard a friend playing some chords upon the organ which put me very forcibly into mind of the Irrawanian statues, for Irrawan is the name of the country upon which I was now entering. They rose most vividly to my recollection the moment my friend began. They are as follows, and are by the greatest of all musicians. And here the author has included a musical score. End of chapter 5